Hi, I'm Gracie Sarkeesian, the Executive Director at the NYU Wasserman Center, and this is All in a Day's Work, the podcast we've created for you. All in a Day's Work will bring you episodes featuring members of the NYU community doing interesting work and navigating the professional world. We are excited to share their stories with you. We hope you enjoy this episode. This is Sarah Rosenthal with another episode of All in a Day's Work. Today, I'm speaking with NYU alum, Ron Rapitalo. Ron, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. Ron, you've really crafted a unique career for yourself. You help educational and nonprofit organizations recruit and hire diverse leadership through your work at Agility Consulting, and you also offer career coaching services to private clients. I want to talk more about all of these amazing things that you're working on, but can you just start with telling me a little bit about what you studied at NYU and what those first few years out of undergrad looked like for you? I was pre-med at New York University, went through the College of Arts and Science, ended up as originally a double major in neuroscience and mathematics, decided for the sake of my sanity to make the mathematics major a minor. The big thing for me at NYU was particularly a lot of the student leadership and student activities and student life on campus. So I got very involved quickly going to my first student club fair during all university orientation in September 1993 and joining organizations like the International Filipino Association, Peers Ears. So I got involved pretty fast, pretty quickly. And I just met so many people, got to do a lot of really cool things like, you know, travel to other college campuses. I also got an opportunity to be a scholar at New York University. I was a Baird McCracken scholar. So the opportunity to travel to places like Costa Rica, to Chile and Argentina, to China. So I feel really indebted to the opportunities and the people that I got to meet those years. So like you said, you started off college on the pre-med track and changed your trajectory pretty early on. How did you make that decision to pursue interests and goals that didn't have that same clear predetermined path like medical school would? You know, I think it was a lot of trial and error. So one of the decision points that I made was realizing that I hadn't done a lot of the pre-work around What is it like to work in a hospital? How many doctors do I know? Or medical students do I know to be able to have those conversations, right? Admittedly, I wanted to be pre-med and go to medical school because it was considered prestigious, especially within the Philippine community. And it was rigorous, it was hard, right, to do. And only a select number of people get to get into medical school. And so I was admittedly applying for medical school and wanted to be a doctor for all the wrong reasons, right? Not thinking about all the things that you have to think about that come with the prestige of being a doctor, managed care and the workload, and you don't earn a lot of money in the beginning, right? And so when I started to think about those things, they gave me a lot of pause of saying, wait, should I actually apply to medical school? And I decided to then wait for a year. I still took the MCAT, but then when I started working a job right out of New York University, working at my old student worker job and working there full-time as a full-time employee, I realized that, this is going to sound a little foo-foo, but medical school just wasn't my passion. I could not see myself, Sarah, in my late 20s and saying, where did these eight years go between medical school and residency? 
I made a bet early on at 21 to say, I didn't think that was my path. And it wasn't informed by a lot of data. It was a very kind of emotional gut level decision, which I'm really glad that I ended up making, right? Because I don't think, I'm not sure I would have been happy, as happy as I am now with what I'm doing, for sure. You're talking about going with your gut in making this decision. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about some of the other experiences you had right after undergrad, because you made another big decision to leave a different position and, and maybe it was for, for a similar reason. Yeah. So I worked in the financial industry. So I jumped around a little bit. I would say after working, you know, my student worker job at New York University, which was admittedly me not wanting to grow up and keep my undergraduate years continuing, right? It was fun to just be on campus and have a job and get paid and still get to hang out on campus, admittedly. I then worked in financial services, total pivot for three years. After working the financial services industry, the big question that I asked myself was, am I having the kind of impact that I want? One, two, am I have doing the kind of work that continues the legacy and the reason why my parents came from the Philippines to start a new life here in America. And three, did I enjoy the work that I was doing, the people I was around? And frankly, all of those things were like, I need to leave financial services because it was just a job. It's paying bills. And so I reflected upon the things that made me really excited and passionate. And this goes back to a lot of the work I did at New York University in social justice and being a student activist for the founding of the Asian Pacific American Studies Program and Institute in 1996. How can I have impact knowing the kind of incredible public education and higher education degree that I got at New York University to be able to ensure that all students, but particularly students of color and low-income students like myself, had those kinds of opportunities. So I ended up making a you know, sector changes started working in the education nonprofit sector. And at some level since 2003, I've been touching that sector for the last 18 years. Well, so there's always some risk in making the decision that you were just describing. What kind of advice would you give to our listeners who might also be in a similar position where they're looking at the work that they're doing and asking, is this just a job or is this an opportunity that I have to really follow my passion and, and what I feel I'm supposed to be doing with my life? Yeah, Sarah, ask me a question that I often get asked a lot about, right? Because I do career coach on the side. And I'm asked this question a lot, not only by college students, but CEOs of organizations, frankly. So it's, it's, a, it's a question that I think has been uplifted during the age of COVID and the pandemic as folks have had to recalibrate on what their purpose is in life and in career. I usually advise folks, and I've advised myself the same thing. It's a articulation, an inventory of your strengths and passions, first and foremost. It's also a articulation and inventory of what you don't like doing, what you're not good at. So there's self-reflection work. There's also work around asking people who know you well those same questions. You, you need to rely on other people because I think if you solely do these things yourself, like I did in undergrad, right? I got lucky and it ended up being a good thing, but it took me, frankly, six years before I fell on what I have now fallen really in love with, right? I would not advise anybody to do what I did and just kind of gut level reaction, kind of meander and figure things out, right? I think in this 
day and age, that's a little precarious considering how volatile the job market is, right? And so there's self-reflection, talking to other people. But then I think the big thing is, is for folks to do their research about the kinds of opportunities that are out there to be able to see based on their strengths, passions, what they don't like doing, what they want to do better in, to figure out what roles and companies and sectors align with those things. The pandemic, I think, has lifted up that it's not full-time job or bust anymore. Even if, look, for financial considerations, folks are going to need a full-time job at some level, but I've seen a lot of folks create from scratch. Who says you can't create a job from TikTok or YouTube or something, you know, or create an app? There are things that didn't exist when I graduated in 1997 that feel very different in 2021. Absolutely. So far, we've been talking a lot about how to think about the experiences that you're having and maybe be strategic about making a decision for your next step. But I know that you also had an experience where you didn't necessarily get to make the choice to leave your job. Can you talk a little bit about that experience of getting fired from a position and how you navigated that period in your life? Yeah, it was a pretty horrible, traumatic experience in my life, I think, and how much that affected my confidence and my morale and my health. That's just real. Like, I, you know, I was at a job for five weeks that's nowhere listed on LinkedIn or Facebook or anywhere, and I was fired. And it was a big punch in the gut, right? The question you had is like how I dealt with it after the aftermath, which is similarly to what I advise listeners and you on how to figure out what's next for the next job or the next career opportunity is I relied on my network. I relied on the people that love me. I remember Sarah sending out an email after I got fired to about 200 people that I knew and loved to say, hey, I'm looking. Here's a little bit of what I'm looking for. Here's my resume. Happy to talk with you. I probably got like a naughty 95% response rate. Whether people said they had something for me was besides the point. The level of care and love and people looking out for me and the amount of times I had to cry to people, to the frustration, the anger about what happened. But because I was in community with people that knew and loved me, in three weeks, I found consulting work and that turned into my next job. I couldn't look any listener or anybody in the eye and say, you will never be fired. The work of building relationship and being community with people so that when especially not only when you're in need, but you can be giving to other people while they're going through things, right? The worst thing you can do is that when you're in need, you start to then ask. If you haven't been in community with people and talking about your dreams, your values, what's next and how you can support people, it's often then too late when you need people's help. We'll be right back to our episode after this quick tip from Miriam Miller. Right now, what we're seeing is a lot of different people who are actively asking themselves this question of what it is that they want to do. We see a lot of people who are leaving positions right now, who are applying for things, who are getting new opportunities. And I think this is a great time to really talk about how to go into that process feeling well-prepared and like you've given it proper reflection. So one of the tools that I want to mention to really get at this question is our NYU online career modules. There's lots of great tools in there on a variety of career development topics, 
But one of the ones that I want to talk about today specifically is our career assessments. So it's self-assessment and also market assessment. With self-assessment, people can go in and they can think a little bit more about their interests, strengths, values, and personality. Within market assessment, they can learn how to better understand ways that they can be effective, getting at whether or not the things that really matter to them align with what might be possible in a given field. And people can really begin to thoughtfully prioritize the things that matter to them and think about how they can acquire that in the course of their work. It's a great way to reflect on what kinds of roles could help you be happiest in your work and most productive. If you look in Handshake in our resources tab, you'll find our NYU online modules, including our assessments. And now back to the episode. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk more about what you do now, specifically with your work at Agility Consulting. Can you tell me about the company and what kind of work you're doing there? So Agility Consulting right now is an executive search and talent equity consulting firm. We exist at Agility Consulting to put equity in action for social impact organizations, K-12, education entities, nonprofits, other kinds of social impact ventures, with two things, hiring senior leaders, redesigning compensation to be equitable for staff and for leaders, and to build talent systems, whether that's performance management, management training, or other things around talents not hiring, to allow for staff to flourish and be their best selves. The very systems that we think would work in a workplace actually perpetuate the kinds of inequities and racism that happen outside of the workplace, right? And so we, in fact, have to think differently and create different systems. I work on the executive search side. So my job at Agility in particular is to bring in business to Agility, particularly for executive search. But not only do I bring in business, but I'm also leading the search engagements, right? So I'm working with clients who are charter management organizations, K-12 education school districts, large national education nonprofits, or local arts nonprofits in New York City or in other places. And so have a large range of clients. We work nationally. One of the ways that we are going to change the very shape of how we are thinking to do better for kids and communities and families is to have folks who represent those communities be in positions of decision-making and authority. That in of itself doesn't mean that everything changes, right? We also realize there are complexities on how people are paid that are inequitable. If we're not examining those things, when people talk equity, it then just becomes lip service. There's just, there's work that needs to be done to uplift these conversations and start to change the mindsets through better systems that allow people, all people, to flourish. So before you started working at Agility full-time, you were doing some freelance consulting work. What are some important things that you learned from that experience of freelancing that you can share with someone who's thinking about jumping into that world? Lot to say here. So when I first started solopreneuring in February, 2014, the very first thing that I relied upon, you'll see a theme here, the people that knew and loved me, personally and professionally. I was able to start solopreneuring because I was able to get about six months of work 
from two people who ran their own search firms that gave me work. I, I, I wasn't at a confidence level or at a financial level where I said, I could just start building clients and building a business. Where I was like, I'm going to start consulting, working for other people, but not being employed by them by getting benefits. And that allowed me the platform to start getting my own recruitment and search clients by asking people, by getting referrals and whatnot. I think the second part is is the articulation of your brand. People have hired me ultimately because of me and my values. So you don't have a strong articulation of who you are and what you're good at, what you value. If you don't believe in the person behind the product, it's going to be really difficult. And then I think the third thing it would impart is then just thinking about, are you just working for yourself? Are you looking to build a business, right? And there's a lot of technical and financial and structural implications on who do you hire? What's your financial model look like? What's your pricing model? Folks who do that well, you can build a sustainable business. So you've taken on many different kinds of projects and in many ways you've taken things that you care about, whether that's a hobby or a passion that you have and created a business out of it in, in many ways. How do you weigh the decision on when or how to start monetizing that? Oh, God, that is such a big question because, you know, I, I've done a number of things where I haven't done it for the money. So I've fitness trained on the side since 1999. I got one of my first fitness training jobs ever teaching weekend classes at Cole Sports Center, the former NYU gym. But... I never did it for the money, Sarah. It's not something, so here's the take, right? In terms of like monetizing, right? Some of it is a risk reward ratio that if I'm gonna do something like fitness training, what's the amount of work I would have to do in order to really monetize it? Do I want this to be side money to pay a bill or two? Do I want this to be full-time money, right? I think it's thinking about these, the monetization in stages, right? For me, when I fitness trained, admittedly it was to pay the membership at the place I was working at. And any extra money I got from it was just a good, it was grocery money. And I was okay with that, right? Because I know from my assessment of the personal training and fitness training world, unless you're some Peloton celebrity or you're gonna build a gym or some franchise, it is really hard to earn money in that, in that industry. I'll give another example, career coaching. Can you earn full-time money doing career coaching? Absolutely, I know people doing it. We have to run it like a business, right? Just solely getting people because you talk to people and have a LinkedIn profile and a website does not mean you have a business. Now, I career coach on the side. I get side money, but it's not pay my mortgage money. So that's, I think, the big thing to think about is how much labor someone wants to make in terms of building a business to be able to monetize it. You've been really intentional in building a robust social media presence, which I imagine maybe is in part because of when and how you've decided to monetize things, what do you think makes a compelling social media persona and how do you cultivate and develop that following? This is a real, I could probably, well, you can probably have another podcast about this, Sarah. I think about this a lot because I get asked about this a lot. I was an early adopter to LinkedIn. I still remember when I joined LinkedIn, this might've been, I don't know, 2009, 2010, roughly. And I just was bullish on the opportunity to build community and get to know people that might be harder to meet in person. And then 
I would just add people. The more people you have as friends and as connections, the more likely you are to be seen. And the other part of building a big social media presence, aside from the amount of friends and the amount of connections you have, is the amount of content and the amount of engagement you have with other people's content and the content that you're creating on these venues. You cannot be someone who solely has a nice profile. You need to add people. And I'm bullish about you gotta you gotta add people outside of your network. It is very 2011 to say, Ron, I only add people I know. Now that's a personal decision. If you want that more power to you, you want to build a social media following. I meet so many people, Sarah, that don't have robust social media profiles, right? And now here's the caveat. Social media has confidentiality risks. Whatever you put out in the cloud is public. The way I've reconciled that is that the brand that I've built, the people that have come to me, the business that I've gotten is worth the current trade-off of giving up some of my confidentiality. Well, Ron, I'm excited to see how you continue to build a career out of your passions. And it's just, it's been such a pleasure learning more about you and, and your career. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you everyone for your time. I never say no to a combo and I never say no to a connection. I, I do make time for the NYU community in particular. So it's a pleasure to be here today. Well, you all heard it from Ron. Go ahead and connect with him on social media. This has been Sarah Rosenthal with another episode of All in a Day's Work. See you next time. If you want to learn more about the services that are offered at the Wasserman Center, you can log onto our career portal, Handshake, through your NYU homepage. Today's episode was hosted by Sarah Rosenthal with episode guest, Ron Rapitalo. We're produced by Miriam Miller, Ben Barzilai, and Lily Smith, edited by Lily Smith and created with support from Nia Beresford, Danielle Crystal, Haley Garofalo, Joseph Mercadante, and Carrie Contianis. That's all in a day's work. Thanks for listening.